0: and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The first Burlington snowfall in 1985 occurred on November 23rd, a night when Fish played a show at Goddard College. During this show, Mike Gordon had a religious experience while playing the bass on stage, an experience that illuminated his desire to commit all of his soul. To music. It was fairly warm for a snowfall that day. According to Mike's recollection, after the first set, the band went out to a hallway corridor and passed around a joint with some strangers. Mike got very high, he could barely stand up, but found himself buoyantly drifting to the stage. There were roughly ten people who came to the show. Eight of those left after the first set. But you don't need an audience for moments of transformation. As Fish would prove throughout their career, Sometimes the best music is made when no one's looking. Their inspiration and drive to keep growing, to keep pushing themselves, to keep challenging musical norms, was one developed from within. A blaze that was started and kept going, regardless of the number of people in the room. The lights turned down completely and Mike bopped to the beat, up and down steadily with rhythm and tenacity. He says this was the first time he didn't care about his appearance on stage. He felt at one with the physical structure of the building, and his bandmates he loved so dearly. As described by him and his bandmates during a 1998 interview with David Byrne, music was always the path for the members of Fish.
2: an electrical engineering student and it was a really good juxtaposition to to have lots of tests and you know stuff that I couldn't even fathom and then unwind by, by going to band practice and having long jam sessions. So. We had a interesting moment when we first started. Mike was probably the most serious engineering student. Fish was a, was attempting to be one. But the least serious. serious. We played a show at Goddard College uh, in a round. Uh, there was a cafeteria that had Sort of a spire on mm-hmm. the side, and so the base of it was circular and probably eight or ten feet in yeah, diameter. Twelve feet around, something like that. And uh, so we played in there, and there was one person that came to to see this show, s- standing in front of us. And somewhere in the middle of the of the set, we were improvising, and Mike started to have spiritual or religious awakening so we were all watching him and and he started to sort of vibrate up and down and um was playing one note he kind of simplified all the music down to one note Mm -hmm. and eventually after about an hour of this put down his base and ran into the woods. We followed him into the woods, and um, he started talking about how he was ready to give up his car. And I wasn't even going to come back from the woods, actually. You didn't? I was talk him mean, out of the, yeah, the woods. more days, it would be semiconductor physics or you know, quantum <laughs> mechanics. And then you wrote that song about engineers. Oh, right, remember right, engineers? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. You know, they, they don't care where the missiles go, they don't care <laughs> <laughs> and that was it and then you became a religion right writer. Yeah. yeah it was a, it was in a way yeah. better. I, I don't think any of us ever had a choice as, as to whether to right. be musicians or not so that was always a good feeling well none of these people are gonna be able to do anything else other than music. <laughs> so so we have a good chance you gave it the most valiant attempt to do something else yeah. he did he gave it. me the almost escape <laughs> he <laughs>
1: this episode, you'll hear once again from Undermine co-hosts David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, as well as Jonathan Hart, all of whom dive into the importance of Fish's 27-minute cover of Whipping Post from the November 23, 1985 show at Goddard College. We'll get into it right after this quick word from our sponsors. the storyteller makes no choice, soon you will not hear his voice. A line from Terrapin Station that resonates deeply within Mike's realization. On one hand, he was making a choice to be a musician. On the other, he was becoming himself, making no choice at all and just realizing what was inevitable. Now let's hear from Dave, Brian, and Jonathan.
3: So as you're listening to season one kind of close up here, we've made a very conscious move to start to transition towards the 1990s. We felt it important before we moved into any later stages of Fish's career to take one last look back at an incredibly important show, an incredibly important jam, an incredibly important night without which we may not be discussing fish here some 38 years later. We've spent so much of this season here focusing on the growth and the evolution of fish and much of this has come through the tinkering and in months and years of chipping away at their craft before realizing later success. And yet there's a show and a jam in particular here that feels almost mythical in nature but goes a long way in showcasing the larger ambitions the earnest pushes towards the next level and the abandonment of reason in the face of the moment that has forever defined what makes fish so special.
4: It fades in on the jam which is quickly moving away from any hint of Almond Brothers southern southern blues and into uh, spacious terrain where you can hear the kind of thing that fish will pursue some 9 and 10 years later when they'd get really deep into the avant-garde jamming but here it's in its rawest form. In many ways you can hear the influence of the Grateful Dead most clearly here as this jam is a bit more like a Dark Star or really an other one from late 60s Primal Dead. Uh, there's even a Norwegian wood tease for good measure which is kind of equal parts not to the Beatles. A little preview of future standout fish jams which might include Well, any number of teases. At the time, it's also Fish's longest jam of their career. They wouldn't have another 25 plus minute jam that wasn't named Whipping Post uh, until the 5.593 You Enjoy Myself.
5: And for me, having listened to this jam on several occasions, I agree that it's a unique milestone that sounds beamed in from a whole nother era of fish. And also, it proves that Jeff Holdsworth was no way a slouch on guitar. He really rises to the challenge here with lots of volume swells, and he really gets into some very
3: good duels with Trey like we said at the top this is a 27 minute jam and you know as you listen to 80s fish and as you followed us through this season we've discussed a lot of the big jam moments one of the defining moments of where fish will be as they leave the 80s is as a band that's not really consciously jamming in the way that we think of fish today they move very consciously into this very tight taut band that is focused on energy and almost a variety show of who they can be in a variety of ways but at this point in the 80s we hear fish just jamming and experimenting in such a raw way and so going through this jam we wanted to give you some senses of where there are kind of notable shifts where there's notable experimentation and interplay around 552 Trey and Paige are just playing this very melodic and spacey type of jamming that moves just immediately out of any hints of whipping post minutes later, around 1022, you hear Trey and Jeff dueling. It's kind of got this Allman Brothers type of feel before just breaking apart entirely. 12.30, Trey basically starts playing the other one. Someone in the audience just says, yeah, in recognition. And like, we all here have been that guy. And it's a great feeling to be that guy and be like, this band is playing that song? Hell, yes.
5: 17 minutes, you got your Norwegian wood teas. jam decidedly to sadly, more chordal and melodic, Nineteen minutes, you get what sounds like a slate of the traffic light jam.
4: then after about, what is it, 2119, Trey builds the jam up in a way that kind of sounds like a Baker's Dozen era fish peak, uh, or maybe uh, some wall of sound madness or something, maybe from like a 21370 Dark Star peak. 415, they get into the reggae breakdown that teases Harry Hood. I mean, looking at the set list, you might think they're going there, which just intensifies right on into the end of the jam.
5: And from that point, I guess they go into what's listed as run like an antelope, which doesn't really bear much resemblance to what we think of as antelope today.
3: We're talking like as raw of kind of fish compositions as you could possibly get at this point in time, and and the jams are really dictating, especially off of a song like "Whipping Post," which throughout the nineteen eighties really served as the main jam vehicle for Fish in a lot of ways. They they would move into the curtain with uh, "Mike Song," David Bowie. We've discussed versions of these songs throughout season one here, among a number of other songs. But "Whipping Post," if you're a Fish fan in the nineteen eighties. You hear Whipping Post. It has that similar sensation to hearing the first riffs of uh, Tweezer in like 1994 through 1997, 98, type of thing, where you just know that you're diving into a huge jam. We wanted to run through a few versions of the track that we recommend throughout the 80s. Well, the uh,
4: 5385 show, which is Paige's first show, he, he immediately makes an impact on the band. Uh, 11 1987 has a really spacey jam uh, to conclude the thing I talked about this one on the, the uh, an earlier episode uh, 52488 it's an incredible jam and like a three song set uh, it's one of the best shows from the 80s uh Big version of Yamar, uh, big jam, some reggae toasting with Job Roy, uh, highly recommend that.
5: June 21st, 1988, so very wild 25 minute jam with Dave's Energy Guide jamming. And also this show has 10 minute version of Fire, also with Dave's Energy Guide. So leave it to fish to find the missing link between Jimi Hendrix and Robert Fripp. May 13th, 1989, this is uh, the final version of being posted the 80s, one of the last versions that did not have fish in our vocals.
3: So... Stepping back here from the jam itself, talking about this show in particular, as we noted at the top here, the show was played in the Goddard College Cafeteria. It's the only show on record to be played in this space, and according to the band, was sparsely populated by fans. The band set up in the round to fit the room. Thus, the gig took on more of a loose rehearsal feel than a proper concert. Volume swells, mini jams, and duels really dominated this evening. From especially Mike Gordon's perspective, this was a significant show, as you heard at the top of this episode, Trey Anastasio was describing this evening, describing what this evening was like for Mike. It was, a, it was a big epiphany moment for him in terms of where he was going career-wise with his music and where he wanted to go from, you know, just an overall life standpoint. During the first set, the band played Wild Thing, along with a few other covers, or scrawled on the blackboard by many a passerby, and in between sets, the band went out in the hallway, asked to run a joint and Mike claimed to get quote, really high. He then wandered through the woods after the second set and decided to give up engineering and film for music.
5: When he returned, the band played another set and I believe he's quoted as saying, I was terrified another set would soil my peak experience, but it turned out just as great. We played for hours, the two or three people listening to us in the darkness. I decided my goals in life, were to live in the woods, travel around from city to city, try to replicate the experience
4: I just had as often as possible. The whole gig's on tape. I'll probably never listen to it. On record, we have two sets, which include the wild thing from set one, and the second set that's more or less a collection of songs played rather than anything that flows in a unified way, as Mike's Whipping Post, Antelope, and Dave's Energy Guide all fade in and out of each other.
3: So another important aspect of this jam and this show is the clear uh, influence that the dead still had on the guitar playing of Trey at this point in fish history. Uh, Within a few years, however, this influence would fall away as the band amalgamated more as a four-piece and King Crimson-style jamming took over along with more of like a speed jazz playing style that you would hear as the band evolves into the 90s and evolves improvisationally in like 1993 in particular. But as Trey talks about this experience of covering the dead, emulating Jerry Garcia in some ways, but then also breaking apart from that. He was quoted as saying in the Fish book, I was obsessed with Garcia's playing throughout my freshman year in college. I couldn't get over his sense of melody and direction. Jerry could take an eight measure phrase and give it logical musical sense over a long period in time. The longer I listened to him, the more I became interested in his influences, primarily Bluegrass and Django Reinhardt. Garcia took Django's music improvisation into the next dimension. You always heard the melody when he soloed, and it was as beautiful and heart wrenching as it was spacey and psychedelic. Everything you could want in a single package.
5: He goes on to say, we played a couple of Dead songs when Fish first got together in 1983, and I said some years later, that's it. I'm not listening to the Dead anymore or going to any Dead shows. They were too imposing an influence, and I was afraid of becoming the next Baby Dead band to come down the pike. So I completely ended my relationship with their music for about seven years. I was obsessed with Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Pat Metheny, and Robert Fripp in high school, and Hendrix, Zappa, and Garcia afterwards but if you don't want to sound like a second-rate version of your idols you definitely have to go through your quote kill mommy phase
3: I'm curious what you guys think about the story that Trey told about Mike, how this kind of relates to the larger fish mythology.
4: Fish has always been rooted in this sort of middle ground of escapism and historical distortion. Uh, The idea of Mike having an epiphany to becoming a musician and then the band playing this sonically driven jam, which seems to touch on all their influences, whom they were trying to distance themselves from, is kind of at that core of Fish legend. It recalls the discussion that we had around the 31288 show back in episode 5. Ultimately, there's dates and significant shows that have defined Fish's career, and this is obviously one of those. It's a show that's you know, somehow bigger than a concert. As I said before, it set them on the right path. Mike has an epiphany,
5: decides he wants to do this for the rest of his life. And like John was just saying, there's important shows in history. There's shows that are benchmarks. There's, you know, shows that people keep going back and
4: listening to. And this is maybe the earliest example of that. Well, you can hear their ambition. They're driving themselves forward in this jam. They're they're building uh, the road as they're driving it. As they say, uh, it's a sensation that will remain throughout their career. And a couple, what, two to three years they're jamming as a... A, as a band will be more connected you'll hear moments within that uh within here that are tapped into you know in later periods rhythmic funk breakdowns wall of sound keys and, and blissful peaks and whatnot
3: how do you guys think that fish would have been different had trey not made a clear break with the dead in 1986 mid-1980s whenever that happened
5: I mean, for me, it's hard to say, given that, you know, Trey wasn't exactly a died-in-the-wool Jerry Garcia disciple. He took just as much, if not more, from, like, Jimmy Page, Hendrix, Dwayne Allman, and Pat Matheny. It seems to me that Trey listens to so much and draws from such a wide pool of influences that I think there's a pretty good chance Fish would have ended up sounding like Fish, irrespective of Trey rejecting the Grateful Dead or not, because his own voice is too unique i think it's more indebted to the 70s classic rock dial than what the grateful dead were into and furthermore i mean you can't discount the fact that tom marshall and robert hunter really pull bark off very
4: different trees well that's absolutely the truth but you know i think that it's as much that as a creative person having to shut out exterior sources so that you can hear the noise in your own head so it's it's not just exclusively Grateful Dead. He probably had to shut out. He probably just wanted to not draw from anyone else. So he needed to turn those tapes off and focus on him, what he had coming out of him.
3: Yeah, I mean, I almost wonder six, seven years later when Fish started to get a national following and when the media started to interview them on a regular basis, almost immediately the comparisons to The Grateful Dead came up and it was something that they had to shake then as they were making their national rise. You almost wonder if the national media was asking them like, wow, you guys are just... Gabriel era Genesis like crazy tell us about that you know if that was the obsession if if there would almost you know by the time what they did the fish book in 1996 97 I think it was when they sat down for those interviews if at that point Trey was talking about this kill mommy phase of like never listening to the lamb lies down on Broadway ever again but that was kind of almost an influence that the media didn't seem to have much of an interest in that King Crimson that there was more of like a oh well the hippie culture clear passes over so without ever listening to a note you have inherited the legacy of the great yeah
4: thing. well they're just looking at the audience and assuming that right we as audience members have one thing we like and there are there are right. <laughs> at least two bands
3: i mean it's interesting cuz like as we've gone through this first season as i've listened to so much 80s fish more in a condensed period than i really ever have to dave's point and and you know this jam aside i don't hear as much grateful dead as i hear robert fripp As I hear Peter Gabriel, as I hear Selling England by the Pound, you know, I hear the compositions from that like British Prague psych folk more so than I hear them trying to, you know, create their own wake of the flood.
1: jam feels reminiscent of the Grateful Dead. Not at all as if Fish was trying to mimic or invoke the spirit of the dead, but something about the way Fish's sounds meld together. We'll hear more about this from Brian, Dave, and Jonathan after a quick word from our sponsors. The Dead started in 1965. There was something primal about their playing, something about the blending of a classically influenced bass player, a bluesy keyboardist, an R&B drummer, and folk-rock and jazz-inspired guitarists. The Dead merges together the diversity of American music. While naturally comparisons have been made between the Grateful Dead and Fish, the two bands emerged in two very different Americas, and the sounds they evoked during their formative years showcase their similarities and vast differences. The drive for freedom and liberty is at the core of both bands, and as fans traveled far and wide with Fish and the Dead across America, the differences between both bands, from a sonic perspective, provide great areas of exploration. As we heard the guys discuss in the previous segment, these differences also led Trey to pause his listening to and playing of the Dead in the mid-80s. Let's toss it back to Brian, Dave, and Jonathan for insight into the early years of The Grateful Dead.
3: So tell me, guys... How do you see that the foundational years of the Grateful Dead compare and contrast with where Fish was in the early to mid-1980s? Rock and roll
4: wasn't brand new when the Grateful Dead, or should I say the Warlocks, began. They were certainly riding an early wave, you know, injecting rock into their folk and jug band and blues, and plenty of groups were doing that right then. But then you add to it jamming influenced by Coltrane records, and you find them way out on a limb. You pump a lot of LSD into the thing, and you get some serious outcomes alchemy. Fish, on the other hand, they started with a completely different perspective. Those new ideas the Dead had formulated were now old ideas. Fish had fresh influences and energies that the Dead would never embrace. So Fish could have Grateful Dead-style jamming in their back pocket pretty early on, the beginning of their career. The Grateful Dead had to invent Grateful Dead jamming. But it's also worth noting that the Grateful Dead, a few years into their career, weren't really doing 25-minute, completely improvised, jams. Dark stars were largely solos. There were not a lot of shifting in the earlier Dark Stars in the uh, 60s. Just not a thing they did in that way.
3: As Grateful Dead evolved, what changes did they implement between kind of 1968 to 1972 that would alter their sound towards what many regard as a, you know, huge peak in the Dead's career from 1972 to 1974?
5: In a word, a songwriting. At that point, Dead had learned to put out some very good, like country rock albums, like the songs that would comprise Working Man's Dead and American Beauty and Bob Weir's solo album Ace which is essentially a dead album with just Bobby songs and no pig pen. The songs in these records really complemented the outer space excursions and provided the path to the future. I mean, this is stuff you're talking the Uncle John's Band, Shrigger Magnolia, Cumberland Blues, Box of Rain, you know, like a lot of the songs that people immediately think of when they think of the Grateful Dead, aside from like the Dark Stars and St. Stephen's, all of these songs
4: were largely written in that period from 1970 to 1972. The band had learned to jam, but writing songs that connect with an audience is what really came to play starting in 69. Then you add to it the uh, expanded palette of Keith's playing, as well as the band's kind of reinvestigation of their own roots with country and folk surging into their material back into their material perhaps, and the band became increasingly well-rounded, but also the jams really started going out. This is where they really began stretching. You get out of 1971, they learned how to really open up a song with true improv, what Fish fans would refer to maybe as type two jamming, where they learned how to leave the song behind.
3: I think as well, like what you guys are talking about here, it, it reminds me of the discussion that we all heard in episode four between Don Hart and Drew Hits, where we talked about the compositions and those compositions of Divided Sky, You Enjoy Myself, and Foam, they all come in 86 87, 88, and 89 as the band is, as Fish is starting to transition into being more of a songwriting band. But where we're hearing them here for this whipping post is still in that era where jams are really defining everything. So turning back to The Grateful Dead, I want to ask a very simple question of everyone here. Why should you listen to the primal dead period?
5: Well, do you like feeling like your entire body is so amped that it's going to free itself from its skin and go crying to the heavens? do you enjoy hearing music so wooly and fleet of finger that it's not entirely possible to realize it was made by humans if you answer yeah to all that that's why you listen to primal
4: dead because my god you want to talk about young and on fire i mean if you've gotten anything out of this season of undermine it's really appreciating what raw foundational period of fish contains and if you're finding moments that sound like hints of the later brilliance while well, listening to who they were at that point, really appreciating at that moment, that's a also a good reason to listen to Primal Dead. But at the same time, it's also extremely different from the later stuff, so... You want to pull out a 1967 tape, and it's going to sound nothing like anything from the 70s. Pigpen is completely unleashed. The Dark Stars are melodic and flowing, and they can sometimes shake you right out of your skin. It's it's a completely different band. Just as we often say about fish, is that they're they're different bands in different eras. Grateful Dead, it's very true.
3: Hearing the foundational period of a band that I love as like a fully formed product has been a revelation in a lot of ways, but it's also reminded me that in the moment when these guys were 22, 23, just coming out of college, trying to figure out who they were, what they were going to be doing with the rest of their lives. Could this kind of crazy idea actually work? The music that's coming out of that is often so impassioned and so full of life and full of ideas that some of which they can't fully express because... You know, they don't have the hours in that are needed. They 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 still need to develop further as musicians and as songwriters in a lot of ways. But hearing kind of those initial ideas, that kind of raw energy of walking into a bar or walking into a house party and seeing a band that you've never heard of, you may never listen to again, that just is absolutely playing their hearts out is just such an incredible experience. And you hear that with Fish. They don't know if they're going to make it at this point in time. There's no understanding that even where they get in the late 80s is going to happen to them. And yet they're playing as though their entire lives depend on it. So in terms of looking at this era of Primal Dead, we wanted to recommend a few jams for you all to listen to that we're going to kind of discuss here. First one up, I'm going to throw out the October 13th, 1968 performance of The Eleven from the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco, California. This is uh, from an incredible October run. Uh, It's held in really high regard throughout dead fandom compared with the February Tahoe shows that were released on, I believe it's Dick's Picks 23 and the February 69 Fillmore shows. It's been a long request for official release here. This show, October 13th, it is a fully flowing second set. And if you look at it on paper, it's got everything you would want from this era of the dead. Dark Star leads to St. Stephen, goes into the 11, goes into Death Don't Have No Mercy. The other one goes into cryptical envelopment in a new potato caboose, drums, feedback. It's like this time capsule of what made the dead so special during this era. And apparently Jimi Hendrix was in attendance at this show. And he kept waiting to be called up by the dead, but it never happened, which is kind of wild because they're so on fire here. And it's kind of this sensation of like... Well, you had Jimi Hendrix in the wings, but like, did you need Jimi Hendrix for this particular show? I I don't don't think so, you know? Um, I selected the 11 jam here, though. It's so varied. It's so emotive and impactful. It's melodically driven, but it's also filled with the kind of space and noise one hopes for from 60s dead. But you can start to hear 1972 peeking through. It's got that melody, but it just has that ability for the band to just like get into you know interstellar space and just take you on a completely wild ride
4: this is one of my all-time favorite tapes and i say tapes because i definitely had this on tape uh 30 years ago and it's (laughs) it's i I actually went to it in uh episode 85 of the broke down pod i played the dark star there and it it is i had this show memorized i know every note and this 11 is outstanding
5: picked from march 28th of 1969 the that's it for the other one sweet so in february and march of 1969 the grateful dead set list actually did not change much from night to night if you're blessed to see them in this time period chances are you're going to see some variation on the dark star saint stephen the 11 triptych and a raunchy pig pen showcase would turn on your love light. Maybe "Good Morning, Little Schoolgirl," or in the case of this show, you get both. This is a classic example of a primal dead show. It was awesome recorded by uh, their engineer slash LSD chemist Owsley Stanley, and it took place on a Friday night at a rec center at a junior college in the Central Valley of California. So the first set of this show does indeed include the awe-inspiring version of the aforementioned uh, Dark Star St. Stephen Eleven trio. You also get "Death Don't Have No Mercy and Turn On Your Love Light, all of which were rendered legendary from the famous Live Dead release, which was actually recorded one month prior. But to call this a first set, it's a bit of a misnomer because that was the idea. But after Love Light, Garcia's form that they only had 15 minutes left before the show must end because clearly at this junior college is run by squares. So, the second set consists of not 15 minute but a 22 minute version of That's It For The Other One. And this first appeared in studio forum on Anthem Of The Sun one year ago. And it concludes with a wall of feedback, Garcia just casually noting, oh, Let's come on. I guess we'll see you next time we're in town or something. And then, what sounds like one of the students who organized the show scream, Let's give the Grateful Head a big hand of applause. Clearly, these young men were destined for much greater things.
4: For my pick, I went with uh, 1967, August 4th, Viola Lee Blues. So Bill Graham decided to take the San Francisco sound to Canada, and he booked the Dead and Jefferson Airplane in for six nights, plus matinee shows at the end of July, beginning of August in 1967. There's not a lot of tapes in circulation from this run, and I've seen reports that there are vault tapes from the August 5th show that appear to have been reused. It's taped over with the uh, date scratched out, so we're fortunate to have this example. Here the Dead are doing what they did so well in the early years. They're taking blues and stretching it out beyond where most anyone would think to take it before they did this sort of thing. The jam builds as much like a a raga than it does a rock song and and waves towards a peak and the precipice of disarray before they draw right back to the core groove and they ride that a little bit before reprising the song and exploring good little dose of feedback. The feedback codas would become more common and lengthy over the coming years, but this was the first known Performance I put all of that In air quotes That are really good For radio But it's It's something They likely experimented With a good bit Prior to this Uh Certainly they had Just witnessed Hendrix At Monterey But here we have The first version Of this from On stage That survives on tape We also have this Little uh Cool little Looney Tunes Sort of melody At the end That Jerry plays Uh Which was also Not uncommon At that time It gives a, a glimpse Of a little more Uh Comical energy Which uh ties into the fish thing a little bit, too.
1: By the time Fish was formed in the mid-1980s, the Grateful Dead was 20 years into their career already. At that point, they'd evolved beyond the primal jams of their early years into American songwriters, acid jazz improvisers, disco dance craze jammers, and aging classic rockers, able to attract tens of thousands of fans to massive football stadiums every summer. The band evolved through time, through life lived in the spotlight, and through death, especially the passing of their keyboardists, Ron Pigpen McKernan and Keith Godchow. In the 80s, Jerry's health was declining, making their brilliance more sporadic. All the while, the soul of their music shone through. This is what makes the mid-80s such a confounding and compelling time for the band. Although the playing was different and less consistent, those who followed could feel the music deepen with time and evolution. Once again, here's Brian, Dave, and Jonathan for an exploration of 80s dead.
3: So tell me guys, where was the Dead sonically and personally in 1985?
4: I I think this question could lead to a wide range of opinions, depending on which Deadhead you ask. Uh, Summer 85, they celebrated their 20th anniversary. Uh, Some folks take the shows, others were not impressed. I think they're generally on a high in 85. There's some strong playing, good set lists, lots to love. There's also some lows, which is, well, that's very Grateful Dead, also very fish in some respects.
5: And i've heard that some deadheads refer to 1985 as the quote year of denial mostly as regards jerry garcia's rapidly deteriorating health i mean he was already looking a bit pallid in 1984 and yet all that being said i think this seldom comes out in the playing and i agree that there's generally a whole lot to like in 1985. i mean there's also Stuff like the notorious Boreal Ridge show from August of eighty five, which is kind of humorously described as the worst dead show ever. But overall I think that the set lists are like surprisingly creative. They'd had Brent in the band for a you know pretty solid period of time at that point, and they didn't have the issues with overly fast tempos that they had in eighty three and eighty four. And I think that the summer especially has some really fantastic rock shows.
3: Why would you recommend that someone listens to mid eighties Grateful Dead? Well, look,
4: at Jerry's health takes a dive. Other band members have their own struggles in the mid-80s. July of 86, Jerry has a diabetic coma, and although he recovered and the band returned to the stage in December of the same year, they lost several steps when that happened and had to work to come back. That being said, before that happened, there is a lot of energized and entertaining playing. Some of the speedier or early 80s stuff is behind them. Brent is in full stride with the group. Uh, they bring back some old material, which is fun, celebrating their anniversary, perhaps. And uh, there they are absolutely very good shows in this time period. Yeah, as I've been
5: saying earlier, I mean, Brent is in the band for about six years at this point. They've got a huge cache of songs to choose from, including the ones that would end up on uh, 1987, album, In the Dark, two years later, which would eventually catapult them to newfound huge levels of popularity. But I mean, really, at this point, the machine is well-oiled. They become an extremely reliable summer shed draw.
3: Oftentimes the kind of darker, lesser known periods can reveal so much about the more celebrated eras. And I find when I listen to 85 Dead, when I listen to 2.0 Fish, I hear this contrast to what is unanimously celebrated and that contrast that kind of weird kind of hazy middle ground is just something that will endlessly fascinate me whenever i'm listening to uh, one of my favorite artists
4: i went to another favorite from 1985 i went to uh, september 15th 1985 chula vista california devore field the scarlet fire it is one of my favorites i have definitely listened to it more than cornell at this point you basically get 20 minutes of exactly what people ought to think of when they think about a Grateful Dead groove. This is it. This is exactly what that sounds like.
3: So I wanted something that was relatively close to the date of the fish show that we were playing. I was trying to find something. I was hoping that there was a dead show on 11-23. I found this version of Terrapin Station from November 20th in the second set. It's a 17-plus minute version. Within a few minutes of leaving the song proper, you have no idea where you're at. It's one of those special and surprise moments. This unexpected greatness of a dead jam shifts into something wholly unrecognizable, similar in a lot of cases to what we were talking about earlier with the uh, Whipping Post jam, where a couple minutes in, you have no idea where you're at. The band is just playing. They're just moving through changes. The music is uh, kind of driving themselves forward. They're communicating and relying on 20 years of intraband communication on stage in such a brilliant way. ¶¶
5: 1985 jam I am going to talk about. It was the version of Shakedown Street from June 30th, 1985 from Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland. Feel safe saying that it's a top three version of the song by any measure. It's a little over 15 minutes. It's ridiculously funky. It's got these like sneaky wah-wah effects that I always like to say they kind of poke their head out from the murky depths like bottlenose dolphins and it modulates like the Shakedown Street Jam really isn't known for changing keys. This one actually changes over to the key of C major and then peaks brilliantly. And I don't think that it's something that the song seldom ever, maybe never has before done. I mean, if this was Fish, we'd be screaming Shakedown's going Type 2, it's going Type 2. It really has to be heard.
1: Mike said that while on stage on November 23, 1985, he imagined Trey in a white tailcoat and with a pocket watch, a vision of the band playing in the 1920s. His mind was moving fast, and this imaginative experience had a permanent impact on his psyche. For example, he decided to keep a journal while playing on stage, something he still does to this day. Following the show, he filled two journals with thoughts and inspiration, and has sworn he'll never listen to the tape of that show for fear of ruining the magic. In this episode, we've looked at the November 23rd, 1985 Fish show from Goddard College. Brian, Dave, and Jonathan made connections and traced the influence of the Grateful Dead on Fish, taking a deep dive into some of the Dead's primal early shows and their performances from the 80s. Above all, Honing in on Mike's spiritual experience in 1985 offers the opportunity for us all to look at our lives. Do we do what we love for work? If not, how do we incorporate what we love to do creatively into our lives? Mike took away three major realizations after this show at Goddard. To live in the woods, to travel from city to city as often as possible, and to recreate the experience he had on stage as often as possible. Here's hoping Fish is able to return to playing music on stage, travel from city to city, and jump up and down in spiritual ecstasy again soon. In the season finale of Undermind, we'll be hitting the road. We'll talk to members of the Fish community who got to see Fish in the late 80s about their discovery of the band, their thoughts on the music, and how the band was evolving as they shifted toward their biggest stage yet, the 1990s. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance by Noah Eckstein. Production assistance by Nick Sejas, Christina Collins, and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. We'll see you next week.